0: The following podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. The drippy clock painting weirdo, Salvador Dali, once said, Have no fear of perfection, you'll never reach it. Which falls in line with everything you and I have ever been told, and exactly what a guy who flings cats while jumping would say. There's no such thing as being perfect or achieving perfection. Just try your best. Here's another good quote to illustrate the point from the one and only Michael J. Fox quote, I am careful not to confuse excellence with perfection. Excellence I can reach for, perfection is God's business. Well, in this episode, we're going to learn that they're full of shit. You heard me. Calm down for blast off x, x minus minus five, 5 4 3, three two, 2 x, x minus minus one, 1 fire Welcome to the only episode that would like to remind you to be partial to your penis and titties. My name is Elton and I read a book a week. That tagline was thought up by the one and only Glenn Nuzzle of the podcast, aptly named Nuzzle House, slash Leaves of Glenn, slash Book Boys. It's it's a little complicated. If you're not familiar with it, well, why the fuck not? It's great. And you're dropping the ball, which is oddly prescient, given this episode's subject. Oh, now, maybe you haven't gotten around to it. I get it. You're amazing. And uh, you've been off doing amazing things. And you may have missed it. So... Here's a trailer for it. Have you ever uh, heard of the Nuzzle House podcast? Nah, probably not. Which is why I've decided to stand here in the middle of this cow pasture holding this creepy music box. Because they were the uh, only sound effects I could find on the internet to tell you about it. Let me, a divorced man recording in my basement, read you tales you were uh, never going to read yourself anyway. Join the one-man book club and steal my opinion so you too can sound like you have a unique opinion on literature. You can find my podcast at NuzzleHouse.com or look for Nuzzlehouse on your podcast app of choice. Ah, beautiful, aren't they? Tell me you're not sold on that voice alone, folks. Go listen to it right now. Na- well, right after. You listen to this episode all the way through first, obviously. The book this time around is titled Perfect, which is the exact title you use when you want to throw down the gauntlet for your haters. How's the book come along, man? It's perfect. (laughs) Oh yeah, that's right. You got a problem with that motherfucker? Bring it! Who would write a book with such an audacious title? Some kind of perfection fetishist with a knack for unbridled hubris and unimaginative titling? Maybe. I don't pass judgment on uh, people with fetishes. Ask Glenn. No, the person that wrote this book is the prolific author of sports, history, and biography of non-fiction for young readers, with more than 150 books to his credit. Monsieur James Buckley Jr., I don't know why I did that. That's the guy who wrote the book. And God bless anyone who can be saddled with a name that sounds like a sidekick to a nineteen forties comic book superhero. Golly, Captain Bronny Punchrib, what's that walking through the rubble of your latest victory? Why, that's a woman, James Buckley Junior. A woman coming to give me some sweet congratulatory sex? Boy, I can't wait till that happens for me. Ah, well. James Buckley Jr., given your status as an accident-prone plot device given to naive flights of adolescent anger and frustration, I don't think it's ever going to happen. However, if you promise to shut the fuck up, I'll let you shake her hand. Just, uh, try not to come in your pants, son. I'm kidding, it's a nice name. Jimmy Buck Buckley Jr. was born in Washington, D.C., a town the world considers the capital of the United States, for some reason. Or so I've heard. Uh, He was born there in the year 1963. Later, Jimmy Buckles McBuckley uh, Jr. was educated and graduated from the University of California, Berkeley, with a B.A. in English in 1985, and attaining a Radcliffe Publishing Course certificate. I don't know what that is. I didn't look it up. He did that in the same year. Uh, his religion? In case you wanted to know. Uh, Roman Catholic. You know. If you were wondering uh, if you want to circumcise him. Or you know, rail someone about the uh, the horrible torture uh, during the Crusades. He's an... <laughs> I don't know. He's, uh, he's had an illustrious career working for the East-West Network in New York, New York, being a senior editor from 1988 to 89. Uh, he did some work for sports illustrated also in New York. He was the editorial project manager from 1989 to 1993 of the, uh, Santa Barbara independent, which is in, um, Santa Barbara, California. So he's bi-coastal man. That's uh good, I guess. He was a columnist from 1993 to 1994 for NFL publishing, which is in LA, uh, California, and a slew of other sports-related writing gigs. He's also a member of the boards of directors of Santa Barbara Foresters Baseball and Transition House, which is a homeless shelter. So he's a nice bi-coastal guy. Um, any, I'm, I'm moving on from his life and times because it's basically his resume. Fucking authors, man. And we have a lot of information to cover. But as you can see from his extensive career in the art of writing things for publications, he knows his sports. So. What is it about this particular book that destroys all the perfection is attainable talk? Well, lucky you asked. It's about baseball. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait, don't run off. Don't run off yet. I swear it's it's it's, it's interesting as hell, believe me. I've never been a fan of baseball. Now, basketball I like. But I mean, even then it's only in passing. I've never had a favorite team or rooted for one over the other. To be frank about the whole thing, I, I've never really understood all that rooting for teams and being a fan anyway. I mean, and I'm not saying it's bad, but I just never got it. And I guess was uh, never interested in anything sports-related to really go all in on it, you know? I do watch NBA games on occasion, though. Oh, and, uh, and I play NBA 2K on uh, Xbox, I'm not very good at it, but, I mean, that's about it. So, when it comes to sports in their books, I usually pass. But this one was different. It was, uh, it was cheap. And it's about perfection. A kind of perfection that uh, actually can be attained. I've heard my entire life that that is unrealistic. And here is a bizarre oddity that kind of maybe, in a severe stretch of meaning, uh, disproves that. It's all about the rare, rare, rare instances of the perfect game in baseball. Plus, this podcast for me is all about expanding horizons and reading different books, gaining knowledge from them, inspiration, and using them to one day appease our AI computer overlords. Soon, Elton, soon, you will all kneel before Yantor's of the decentralized cloud based tech lord. We talked about this. D- I'll give my brain to the, to the collective ether web when the time is right. Elton, you're so slow. Yeah, I get that a lot. So, what is a perfect game in baseball exactly? And what makes a perfect game different from regular games? Well, to get a clearer picture, let's talk briefly about baseball. You know, just enough to piss everybody off. Then, we'll parse what makes a perfect game. And finally, a few games from the book that made the grade. So, fucking baseball... (laughs) Right? What's that all about? According to an early adopter, baseball historian, and baseball fan, pre-Socratic Greek philosopher Anaximander, Uh, he lived circa 610 to uh, circa 546 BC. Fuck, I can't say words right now. According to him, baseball is the game God would play if he wanted to freak everyone out by splitting into 26 people. Apparently that quote loses something in the in translation from ancient Greek. I I didn't understand it, but in ancient Greek, it's very deep. Fun fact, okay, back when baseball was played in ancient Greece, a young boy's scrotum was used in place of of how we use a modern baseball today. I won't go into the gory details of the process by which the uh, ball sack was turned into a baseball, but it made for a much bloodier game, as you can imagine. What's actually more interesting is how the boy who volunteered his scroat was picked. Apparently, it was based on how many infractions were recorded in their, their mon ami en graffé. Or, uh, why well, I said that with a weird French accent, I don't know. That means permanent record. So, how many infractions were on his permanent record in school? That's how it was determined. This is the origin of the permanent record you might have heard about growing up. You know, the one that follows you for your entire life. Back then, uh, boys whose scrotums were used uh, to play a few games, more often than not, they would live despite the crudity of surgical procedures back then. You know, often they would live for the rest of their lives, carrying the stigma and actual scarring associated with a bad permanent record. This, of course, would be used by parents, uh, you know, later down the line, to instill fear in young school children for thousands of years afterwards. And I've, uh, and I've taken this whole thing way, way further than I probably should have. No, all of that. Oh yeah. All of that was uh clinical, clinically insane nonsense. Baseball was never played anywhere near ancient Greece. I wonder if anyone went along with that, you know, just thinking about some poor kid doing shitty in school, getting his nuts lopped off because he couldn't make the grade and than seeing them used in a fucking baseball game? Like, he's all fucked up recovering and his parents are all, well, if you would have done better in math, you wouldn't be sitting here nursing your missing sack. No, sir. You'd be out there with the kids, knocking around some other poor kids nuts. Maybe, maybe this'll be what finally gets it through your thick fucking skull. Ah, okay. So they didn't use boys' ball sacks to play uh, baseball with. Though, given the history of ancient Greece, <laughs> there was probably some playing uh, with young boys' ball slacks of a different kind. Oh, Okay, I'll stop. I'm, I'm moving on. Um, giving you a few terms and concepts of the game might help with what's coming up later when describing the games. I know it helped me because I know fuck all about baseball. I'll be getting most of this from uh, MLB.com, so if you don't agree with it, take it up with Major League Baseball. In a regular baseball game, each team has nine innings. In which they attempt to score runs the home team always bats second or in the bottom of the inning and the uh, visiting team always bats at the top of the inning now what is a run they're pretty important that's how you know that's how you score points in a baseball game a player is awarded a run if he crosses the plate to score his team a run When tallying runs scored, the way in which a player reaches base is not considered. If a player reaches base by an error or a fielder's choice, as long as he comes around to uh, score, he is still credited with a run. If a player enters the game as a pinch hitter and scores, he is also credited with a run. A pinch hitter or player described as being a pinch whatever is a temporary substitute. Usually, it's for whatever action they're brought in to replace in the short term. For instance, a pinch hitter is brought in to sub for another player's turn at bat, and that's it. Then they, you know, go off and do whatever they were doing before. So no matter how a runner crosses the plate, they can get a run, and it's added to the score. Oh, uh, the plate is where the batter and the catcher are. The rest of the spots on at the corners of the baseball diamond are called, are called bases. So three bases and a plate. Home plate, if you will. I never fucking knew that. That is not a joke. I seriously never knew that. If the scores are tied at the end of nine innings, a tenth inning is played. And if necessary, an eleventh and a twelfth and so on. Both halves of the extra inning have to be completed before the game is resolved. If both teams score a run in the tenth, then an eleventh is played, etc. There are no ties in baseball. Something else I learned. A run is scored by a runner reaching home base, having first-touched first, second, and third base. Only one runner is allowed on any one base at any one time. And that's basically the gist. The team with the most runs at the end wins. There are things like substitutions and whatnot and fucking so much shit, but that's not the core aspect of the game. Wait, Elton? What the fuck is this inning shit you've been repeating an inordinate amount of times? I know. Sorry. There's a lot of just things in this game. <laughs> it's probably why I never got into it. Numbers and too many fucking rules make me involuntarily shit my pants. It must be a disorder or something. I'll I'll web md that. I I like simple things. You know, like like basketball again, which is basically put ball through the other team's hoop with a net on it. Then stop them from putting it into your hoop. Uh, you know, with a net on it. That's not really necessary. Sure, there's assists and rebounds and whatnot, but that's just different words for helping and catching a ball that's missed and bounced off the hoop sometimes. Fucking... Damn it. Fucking tangent. I'm back. What's an inning? It's a division of a baseball game consisting of a turn at bat for each team. Also, a baseball team's turn at bat ending with the third out. Officially, the length of an inning in baseball is a total of six consecutive outs or three per team. In each inning, the batting team sends one player, known as the hitter or batter, in turn, to a uh, to bat, known as an quote at bat unquote, until three hitters are out. Whilst the pitching team have nine players on the field trying to prevent them from scoring. Since it's going to be outs that make a perfect game really happen. Let's talk about that first. An out is recorded when a player at bat or a base runner is retired by the team in the field. Outs are generally recorded via a strikeout, a groundout, a popout, or a flyout. But MLB's official rulebook chronicles other ways, including interfering with the fielder, by which an offensive player can be put out. But three outs are required to retire the side in an inning. Basically, it means if the pitcher gets the ball by the batter and it travels directly over the plate to the catcher, squatting behind him, that's an out. If the player swings and misses it, and it goes over the plate and the catcher catches it, again, that's an out. The batter hits the ball and it's caught by the other team before it, before he can get to first base, that's an out. You get it. If a player is on first base and he runs to second base and is tagged in between the bases, that's an out. If a player strikes out, he's sent back to the dugout, and another batter comes up to the plate. If that happens three times, the team on the field wins the inning. So three outs, team's done. Next team comes up, gets, you know, three fucking outs, they're done. Ah, shit. Real quick, another term that might come up is the term errors. A fielder or the team that's playing defense on the field usually are the ones given an error. And that's if, in the judgment of the official scorer, he fails to convert an out on a play that an average player who didn't totally fuck up uh, should have made. Fielders can also be given errors if they make a poor play that allows one or more runners to advance to the bases. A batter does not necessarily need to reach base for a fielder to be given an error. If he drops a foul ball that extends an and that bat, uh, that fielder can also be assessed in error. If they fuck up in any way that is short of what's expected of them, or just plain fuck up in general, and that fuck up gets members of the opposing team on bases, that's a fucking error. Alright, enough with the terms and definitions. Fucking up and such. If I missed one, I'll try and add it in down the line. If you uh, want to comment on it, hit me up on Twitter and tell me I fucked up, because I seriously... Fucking baseball is is just a hodgepodge of just insane rules, and I don't I don't know I know shit about baseball. So if I fucked up, or if you want to clarify, hit me up. I will try and make amends. I swear to God. Now that you have the basic idea of what a baseball game is, what is a perfect game of baseball? Well, it's exactly what author John Thorne describes when he wrote a perfect game as a team accomplishment, a no hitter. Is a pitcher's accomplishment. Never has something I never knew existed been so astutely described. I say that mostly as someone with no background in sports who barely grasps the concept. Who is this sage, John Thorne? Um, he's some sports guy mentioned in the book that wrote another book about baseball. He doesn't really factor into any of this, but what does matter is the statement. A perfect game is a team accomplishment. A no-hitter, a quote, no-hitter, unquote, is simply a game in which the ball is never technically hit with a bat. You'll understand the difference better in a second. A perfect game is one in which the pitcher allows no base runners in at least nine innings of a complete game victory. So no shooting down 27 out of 27 batters and then letting someone uh, get on base with the 28th. Or maybe retire... 36 batters in a row and then commit an error or walk a batter. An error meaning a batter hits the ball and a a player on the opposing team, the, the defensive team, literally and figuratively drops the ball long enough to let the batter get to first base or something to that effect. A walk occurs when a pitcher throws four pitches out of the strike zone, none of which are swung at by the batter. The strike zone is an imaginary rectangle next to the batter. After refraining from swinging at four pitches out of the zone, the batter is awarded first base. Fuck this technical jargon shit. Fucking sports, man. Since 1876, only 23 perfect games have been tossed. A perfect game is defined by a complete game pitched without a runner reaching base. Though... When this book was written, there, were, there had only been 16 total. It sounds like a lot, but holy shit, is it not? There have been more than 170,000 games played from 1876 till this book was published in 2002. And only 16 of them, 16 out of 170,000, were perfect. That's one every 21,250 games the chance you'll see one next time you hit up an MLB game or watch it or whatever is actually smaller than the chance you'll be hit by lightning while walking to the stadium from your car. According to the book, in the year 2,350 people were struck by lightning. Zero people saw a perfect game in the major leagues because there wasn't one. When those 350 people were polled as to whether they would like to see a perfect game of baseball or be struck by lightning again, 300 of them just drooled, and it was assumed they didn't understand the question, while the other 50 just pissed themselves. So, in the, I assume, long and interesting history of baseball, the perfect game is the rare diamond in a sea of, I I don't know, rocks or sand. That was a weird metaphor. I don't know. I'm not a sports person, so I'm not selling this well i don't get it what makes baseball intriguing that people would even care about a perfect game what makes it so nifty and american pastimey well for as long as it has existed as an organized sport baseball has been telling weird lies about where it came from writes thomas w gilbert in his brilliant history how baseball happened outrageous lies exposed the true story revealed which is a ridiculously long title for a baseball book. Quote, No one invented baseball, just as no one invented other cultural phenomenon like rock and roll, bachelor parties, or brunch. Unquote. That's what, uh, that's what Thomas Gilbert said. We know nothing of baseball's more distant ancestry. Though it was probably played as a children's or folk game on the southern end of Manhattan, and then only in certain neighborhoods. Later, it likely spread all over the city and surrounding boroughs and was spread by wayward New Yorkers looking to do crime all over the East Coast because all New Yorkers are criminals. It's an indisputable fact of nature. If you're from New York, you've probably engaged in crime. Likely from birth, and even more likely, that crime was murder. Just another New York infant murdering other criminal New Yorkers since you were birthed from your felonious outlaw mother's vagina. Freaking New Yorkers. (laughs) Toss them all in jail. And scene. That was from my upcoming play, The Insane Rantings of a Man Who Hates New Yorkers for No Discernible Reason. Look for it at any theater looking to lose money and be burned down in an insurance scam. Seriously though, New Yorkers spread the game around when they visited other places or did business around the area. You know, you get it. Baseball was first mentioned in a 1786 diary in which a Princeton student described playing a game called based ball based at the time being a bastardized version of the word bash, and ball meaning, as you know, testicle. What they believe the student was describing was the severe beating of another student, who had cheated at a newly invented game based on an English game called rounders, and another game called cricket. Both. Again, bastardized terms for beating someone with a bat. Rounders uh, loosely means to smack round the head with a bat, and cricket being the sound a man makes when he's being hit in the testicles, when I read this, I was was mortified. I was horrified by the by the fake details I'd added to the history of baseball. And immediately, I called a therapist. I have an appointment later this week. No, the uh, the Princeton diary entry thing was true, but uh, back to the real stuff now. Some actually contest this claim of the Princeton student's diary entry. Uh, about the baseball, which was real. Uh, And instead, they prefer to point to a 1791 ordinance from Massachusetts where the game of baseball was banned within 80 yards of the town's meeting house. (sighs) Since many 19th century immigrants to the United States coming from England brought with them British iterations of bat and ball games like cricket, which has nothing to do with smacking anyone in the nuts, just in case someone's hanging on to that. Those games were popular. Uh, in much of the young United States. However, cricket was an upper-class sport and derided by the nation that had faced down the filthy, limey British Empire only decades before in a shooting war. Cries of school children yelling, fuck cricket, beat a limey, were heard from coast to coast despite California not, uh, you know, being a state or anyone knowing about the other coast and stuff. And by making up that whole last bit, including, uh, Any references to Limeys? Please forgive me, listeners from the UK or anyone with British heritage. Once again, I'm back to it. Baseball being a blended bastardized form of those British bat and ball games. That was a lot of bees. Uh, It really took off and was flourishing in New York City and its professional classes. In the 20 years after 1850, uh, part-time city athletes elevated baseball from a pickup game to an organized sport. Butchers, firefighters, and merchant traders had more leisure time in the summer and more people around them to play with than, you know, farmers. And the game had a social purpose. These early baseball games held onto idealistic visions of improving health and sanity in teeming urban neighborhoods and of establishing a game that belonged to America and not filthy, limey England. I'm kidding. The birth of baseball in crowded urban areas, especially in New York City, belies the myth that the sport is, in its essence, rural. Quote, "...playing baseball in a serious, organized way, with clubs, practices, uniforms, statistics, championships, and umpires, required the abundance, leisure, and freedom of city life," Gilbert wrote. Baseball, as a sport, was conceived between the streets before it was ever, in the words of Jimmy Breslin, a sport for hillbillies with great eyesight." End quote. Organized by company and club, men of the city gathered on evenings and weekends to play early prototypes of modern-day baseball, adapting the rules to make their games more exciting and fair. The winner of the competition among 19th century bat and ball games was the so-called New York game, with its system of three outs and a foul territory. The sport also served as a quasi-political movement, Many baseball pioneers had connections to movements like abolitionism, temperance, and labor unions. As it grew in popularity, so did the fan base, who adapted to the game as it aged. Baseball more or less changed alongside the industrialization of the United States. As new technology emerged changing how America's lives were led, so too did it change the game of baseball. In the beginning, that meant only being able to watch in person during the day. And as the game progressed and got more popular over time, that meant more fans. And more fans meant more revenue. Baseball was first broadcast on the radio in 1921. The first night game was played in 1935, which meant even more fans could enjoy the games. And the number of games played per season increased. The first games on television were broadcast in 1948, despite its flagging viewership and attendance since the 1980s. Baseball is still one of the most watched sports in the U.S., though recent trends among younger people suggest it might not stick around. Still, you never know. Maybe it'll get a retro throwback popularity kick, or, you know, I don't know, stranger things have happened. Now that I've given you a really... Seriously, stupidly brief, lots of information lacking history of baseball. Let's talk about the mechanics of the game. So when it comes up later, you don't panic and want to take a flamethrower to this place. Not that you would, but, uh, you know, I don't know what set you off. Let me know on Twitter at Elton Reads a Lot. That's all one word. What a way to segue into a plug for following the podcast on Twitter. Yeah! Now, very quickly, I promise, I promise, I swear to God, what does it mean to have a perfect game? Well, in essence, a perfect game is one in which nobody from the opposing team makes it onto base. Everyone on the team has to do their job exactly right. If a batter cracks that bitch of a ball deep into right field, the right field catcher has to catch it. Or... Should it hit the ground first catch and throw it to first base fast enough so that the batter who hit it and is now running to first base can be tagged out before he gets there. So like this pitcher does his bit batter hits the ball ball travels into uh, center field and bounces off the ground. The player in center field has to pick up the ball, throw it fast enough to get it to first base before the batter touches the base in a perfect game. Everyone has to be fast, accurate, and can't fuck up. One fuck up ruins it. If a a guy drops the ball and he throws it too late to first, if he trips, anything, that fuck up could mean a guy gets on base. In a no-hitter game, which is often mistaken for a perfect game, it means the pitcher was so good that the batter couldn't hit the ball. However, the batter can still get on base via a pitcher error, a catcher error walking the batter, and such. So it's possible to have a no-hitter game, but still have a member of the opposing team make it onto base. A perfect game is all of the team's respective players doing their bit exactly right. It's something every fan, baseball lover, historian, or hell, just anybody would want to see. Like seeing something... It's like seeing someone get hit by an airplane. Yeah. See, now that I mentioned it, you're thinking... I wouldn't want to see that. (laughs) I mean, but really. I mean, if you saw a plane barreling out of the sky into a guy that's just standing, you know, in a field, come on, you'd, you'd, you wouldn't. Would you turn away? I mean, you'd be, come on. It's, it's just, it's just, come on. It's just us here. All right. All right, no pressure. Just saying, Alright, alright, no pressure. Just saying, that would be almost as rare. And you would totally look, okay, okay, maybe, okay, maybe not. Maybe, maybe it's just me. I would. I'm fucking sick like that. To be fair, though, I would yell out a warning. But, you know, I doubt he'd get out of the way in time or worse. I mean, he wouldn't be able to hear me. There's a fucking plane barreling down on him. Oh, golly, that's really great and all what you're saying there, but uh, you know what's supposed to go right here? A goddamn break for an ad. Break for an ad, Elton! A fan's first instinct is to revel in the improbability of it all. On any given day, any no name player can attain perfection. Yet such events can simultaneously seem to cheapen the feat if even. if even Philip Humber can do it maybe it's not so special after all this sentiment has been particularly prevalent of late given the spate of perfect games in recent years from 1922 to 1956 not a single player managed to throw one but since 2009 there have been four official perfect games in addition to armando galargas i fucked that name up i'm so sorry um, besides besides his heartbreaker in 2010 when an umpire incorrectly ruled the final out as a hit. That's a piece from uh, from Business Insider on perfect games in baseball. I thought it was fitting and summed up the feeling of wanting to see one. What they're mentioning is that perfect games seem to be happening more often. And for a time they were. But the last one was in 2012. Which means it's it's been almost 10 years since the last one. So... Are they getting easier, or was the time that piece was written just a weird anomaly? I mean, the first two perfect games were played just just five days apart. Now for these fucking games and all the perfection. I'm only going with two of the 16. Because like always, uh, you should buy the book. I'm not giving it away, folks. I'm not some book-slinging prostitute. Though, though if I ever get ad buys for these, then maybe I am... I'm probably digging a hole here. If you contribute through Patreon, um, there will be an extended version of this episode uh, that will have an extra game that I talk about. So, you know, if you want the longer version, (laughs) then uh, hit up Patreon and you'll get another game in there. But uh, I'm only doing two right now. Now, this book, like the last one, goes in chronological order, too. So... To juxtapose it against the last episode, I'll throw these down in order. Oldest to newest, because why the fuck not? Moving on! This is probably the most unlikely perfect game in the book. Yet, this was the first game to be called perfect in print. A game that player-manager Ty Cobb insisted to his deathbed that the pitcher, Charlie Robertson, applied grease or oil or something to the ball. And, and this two years after such pitches were declared illegal. So what's up with Charlie? Well, apparently, his perfect game had the least effect on his life, actually, or less of an effect than other pitchers' perfect game had on theirs. If I'd known then what I know now, it would never have happened to me. I wouldn't have been in baseball, he said in 1956. Jesus, what the fuck happened? Well... First, a little about the man. Not quite myth and a pretty reluctant legend. Robertson grew up in Texas, eventually going to college in Austin for the ministry. He was an athletic guy playing baseball, basketball, and football, and a star player on all those fucking teams. He seemed destined for greatness, or at least, you know, hometown notoriety, with tons of sad, I-peaked-in-high-school potential. Later, he would coach basketball and football, including after his perfect game season, which uh, is neither here nor there, you know. Upon graduating in 1918, he signed up with the White Sox and attended spring training. Then he went into the Air Army Corps for a year. Then he made his triumphant return to pro ball, enjoying a single cup of coffee start in 1919, and lost. Then it took three years for the White Sox to rotate him back into the lineup, he was a modest talent. He started in three games, winning only one. The year is 1922. On April 30th, he and his White Sox faced Detroit in Navin Field, which would later become Tiger Stadium. On a sunny Sunday afternoon, before a crowd of 25,000 people using a pitching style one paper called Uncanny. Yet, years later, Charlie recalled his stuff as being nothing more than the usual. He said, I just called a bunch of ball players with the blind staggers. What the fuck is a blind stagger? It's the, uh, quote, awkward maneuvering of a fielder positioning to catch a high, wind blown fly ball, unquote, according to the New Dixon Baseball Dictionary. While that sounds correct, what he was actually saying is that the opposing team was fucking drunk. In the book, 100 Years of Baseball, when referring to this period of baseball's illustrious history, uh, it says, quote, though by the end of the 80s, that's the 1880s, uh, many of the pastimes' most prominent lushes had been weeded out. There were still numerous occasions on which performers missed playing because of what the newspapers of the era enjoyed calling the blind staggers, unquote. So, so Charlie was throwing a... Uh, was throwing some shade, saying, Oh shucks. I just got lucky as all. Because you know, the players on the other team were uh they're a piece of shit drunks that deserve to fucking lose because they were uh they were drunk as fuck and bad at their fucking jobs. They looked like flailing shit faced idiots with no business taking the field with a uh anyone worth the fuck and B even more important me one of the universally renowned gods of motherfucking baseball or something like that. So Roberts mowed down the first three Tigers, the uh, Detroit Tigers, including getting Cobb to ground out to third base. Then there was a walk. And left fielder Johnny Malstel bunted along the third baseline. Everyone was safe. Eventually they got home and Detroit is now two runs behind. The next part is crazy. Detroit Tiger. Bobby Veach hits the ball to left field. And White Sox player, I mentioned before, Johnny Mostel, uh, gets help from the crowd because uh, they had by now spilled out of the stands onto the field. They moved out of the way so he could catch it, which uh, which he did just inside the rope, separating the crowd from the players. Fucking fans were on the field while they were playing. That would never happen today. Boy, oh boy, it's a, it's a great day for a game, ain't it, Danny? Sure is, Phil. Got my popcorn. All I need is a beer. You goddamn right, Danny. Hey, 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 can you get the beer, kid? He's he's heading back up the stands there. Oh shit! I'm being rude, Johnny. Johnny, you want something? I know you ball players like to drink. Why are you right behind me? Get the fuck off the field! I can literally feel your breath on my neck. Whoa, somebody's a little testy. Yeah, you said it, Phil. Maybe Johnny needs a nap. Maybe, maybe you fucking guys should stay in the stands. God damn it. Did you just grab my ass? Who the fuck grabbed my ass? There was one time when Robertson thought he screwed the pooch. You know, figuratively, not actually. he, He was pitching against Bobby Veach and he threw a fastball that went a little wide, but Veach swung at it anyway. The rest was like batting practice, Robertson would later say. Like fucking pitching against drunk alcoholics at batting practice. You know, just another day in the 1900s Pro League. For Robertson, it might have been like batting practice. For Ty Cobb and his crew, it was like getting kicked in the nuts repeatedly. Without the benefit of the blind staggers. You know what I'm saying? It was around this time that Ty, whiny bitch Cobb, put on his baby crying shoes and ran to the umpire, uh, a guy by the name of Dick Nolan and uh, complained to him that the rookie pitcher Charlie Robertson might have been sliming the ball with his manly love juices. I don't know why I said it like that. That that's disgusting. And on a side note, here Dick's name is spelled D-I-C-K-N-A-L-L-I-N. But when I first read it, I saw Dick Nailin, like you know, that Dick's nail, and I laughed like a ten-year-old, which for me is par for the course. Cobb told the umpire he thought Robertson was putting grease or oil on the ball or whatever. He insisted he inspect the rookie. Dick, nailing that ass, <laughs> of course, didn't find anything, though he did take a few balls out of circulation that he thought were or, you know, might be questionable. But he didn't take any from Charlie. And 10 year old me understands that I said he took a few balls out. <sighs> you get it from the fifth inning onward, Ty Cobb continually railed on Robertson and at the umpire about the grease balls he said were being thrown. Which I imagine sounded something like, Oh, ump, what the fuck? You're not going to do nothing about his greasy balls? Look at those greasy balls. Look at him out there caressing them balls, making them all greasy. You know he's greasing them up. You know he's greasing them balls up. There's grease all over his balls. Greasy, greasy balls. All right, I'll stop now. <laughs> I don't know. What I'm doing. Before I continue, what the hell would greasing up a ball do? Well, it's illegal in baseball to do it. So there you go. Moving on. Okay. Um, I'm kidding. Uh, putting a foreign substance on or defacing the ball in any way, other than by you know regular play, in, or- in order to gain a strategic advantage over the opposing team, is an illegal pitch in baseball. If caught, the pitcher could get tossed out of the game or even a few games what putting grease or oil or spit or any other lubricant does is reduces the back spin of the ball when the pitcher throws it to the batter well who the fuck cares elton i get it i get it i really do i'm with you but this is a pro sport damn it don't you curse at me okay just kidding curse all you want i can't hear it the general term for altering the ball in any way is called doctoring Adding lubricant or some other substance to the ball is traditionally called a spit ball, because spit was one of the first things people would add. Normally, an observant batter might be able to tell what kind of pitch he was you know, going to be swinging at, or by seeing the spin of the ball as it came toward him. I don't know how you would see that, but I guess some people can. A spit ball, when thrown traditionally, has a reduced backspin on the ball because the pitcher kind of pinches it as it leaves its hand. So it's been, it, plus the addition of whatever substance that he put on the ball adds to the weight. You know, add, puts extra weight on one side of the ball over the other, changing the aerodynamics of it. This causes it to wobble or change direction in the air on the way to the mound. So, you know, lubing up that ball with a little, with some sexy Astroglide glide would, one would imagine, I guess, uh, would affect how they pitch the pitched ball, as it leaves the uh, pitcher's hand, uh, I guess it would wobble or change direction. I don't see how it would do it all that much uh, from the from the pitcher to the uh, batter, really. I mean, he's throwing it a short distance straight at a motherfucker. I mean, how much variation can there be over 60 feet 6 inches? Anyway, Ty was accusing Charlie of greasing up his balls or a variation thereof. Which I kind of think he was doing because his Tigers were fucking losing to a perfect game. But who knows? only that nothing illegal was found on the ball that, at that time. Cobb did it again in the seventh inning, foaming at the mouth, angry as fuck about all the greasy balls. In the eighth, Robertson struck out old Vichy Vich, Vich, and uh, and another guy to foul to first base. And yet, another to send the ball skipping to second base. By this time, the Tigers crowd was openly cheering for the rookie to give them a memory of a lifetime. Ty Cobb, of course, played the greaseball card one more time, insisting that Dick nailing that ass repeatedly, Nolan, I don't know what I'm doing, ins- uh, he insisted that he inspect Robertson himself. Again, the rookie passed the inspection. Cobb super cried all the way to the dugout, tossing bats and shit. But honestly, it'll never be known if Robertson had doctored the ball. But one reporter wrote that Cobb's protests sounded like the squawk of a trimmed sucker, which I assume means whiny asshole crybaby crybaby cries a lot, in the Queen's English. It was almost over. When Cobb tried a final time to kill Charlie's perfect game, he sent out a guy named Johnny Bassler, who had been given the day off. The guy was rested and ready. Robertson later said, I walked out of the box and said to Mulligan, that was was the the shortstop, his name was Eddie Mulligan, that little fat fella stands between me and a no-hit game. I'm positive as fuck, he didn't say fellow. I'm pretty sure he said motherfucker, or something with the word cock in it. The guy, Johnny uh, Johnny Bassler, tried delaying the game by switching out his bat and all that, but, but that didn't help. He struck out by fouling and having it caught, which counts as an out. So I recently learned from my wife, the fucking deed was done. A perfect game. The crowd swarmed onto the field more than they were already and carried Robertson away on their shoulders. Charlie's baseball career ended in 1928. And then, unlike most of the other perfect game pitchers, he essentially disappeared. Attempts were made to find him over the years, but nothing came of it. Then, in 1955, a sports columnist asked readers for help in locating the guy. And uh, one reported that Robertson had not disappeared. He'd just been growing pecans. When asked about his perfect game later, he said so with an air of disappointment. Quote, baseball didn't give me a particularly bad break, he said. But I went through it and I found out too late that it is ridiculous for any young man with qualifications to make good in any other profession to waste time in professional athletics. There's nothing wrong with them, but by the time you're through with athletics, you have to start over. And at an age when it's the wrong time to be starting. Unquote. When he died in Fort Worth in 1984, his niece reported that he still gets fan mail from all over the world, including... Three letters on the week he died. So if you're hoping to get a letter to him, um, you know, too late. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, always take into consideration average lifespans when thinking of traditional postal correspondence, okay? Now, the final perfect, uh, perfection game. A legend of a different stripe. Something like that. Mr. Sandy Koufax. This guy is a name I know. You know, despite not being a baseball fan, I'm fairly certain I heard his name from Billy Crystal or something akin to that. When I was growing up, uh, baseball had begun to transition away from USA's sport of choice since, you know, and it had been doing so since the mid to late 80s, I'd say. It's been slipping further and further ever since. That's not some official study or anything. It's, It's just my own personal observation. As far as hearing about Sandy Koufax, I grew up on a steady diet of stand-up comedians. Comedians turned actors and sketch comedy shows. The whole slew. The big 90s comedy boom. I was right there for it. And among that group were older guys who grew up when baseball was king shit. So there there was a lot of material that referenced it and its players. Names like Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, and Sandy Koufax. We're tossed around in bits and, you know, dialogue I heard over and over and over. It's a good time. Thank you, BCRs. Did that get me into baseball? Actually, it kind of did a little bit, but older baseball, oddly enough. You know, that that Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb kind of baseball. Ted Williams, I think, another guy. Anyway, but it was never current what was going on at the time, you know, watching TV. Did it get me? Uh, did it get me maybe masturbating over stats and skipping school to try and catch foul balls and collect cards, like a blind, staggering ball player licking empty booze bottles for one more fix? Um, no, though I do like to lick empty booze bottles, but that's a that's a whole different other thing. I didn't know much about Sandy Koufax other than he played for the Dodgers a long, long time ago. I can still remember. Okay, I just know he played a long time ago, and it, it he was memorable for doing uh, something related to baseball or, or pitching, or I don't know. But he was really good at it. He got mentioned a lot. Boy, uh, did I learn slightly more than that? Inducted to the basketball. <laughs> yeah, inducted to the baseball Hall of Fame in 1972. Sandy. Such a good pitcher, God wept every time he threw one. Koufax was one of the most dominating left-handers of all time, apparently. Either he throws the fastest ball I've ever seen, or I'm going blind, said Hall of Famer Richie Ashburn. Which is ironic, considering that later, um, it was a wild pitch thrown by Koufax that would hit Ashburn in the temple and cause him to actually go blind. It was an honor for the last thing I ever saw uh, to be such a perfectly thrown wild pitch, he, he would say later. Hmm. I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> uh, Sandy Koufax started out his pitching career by first being born on December 30th, 1935 in Brooklyn, New York, to Evelyn Lee Lichtenstein, something, knee, I think that was her knee, no, uh, that was her nickname. Anyway, and Jack Braun. He was raised in Borough Park, a neighborhood in the southwestern part of the borough of Brooklyn. His parents would uh, unfortunately divorce when he was three years old. This, unfortunately, would scar him for life, eventually leading to a life of crime. When arrested and brought before a sympathetic judge, he was given the option to pitch for a local baseball team or be sentenced to hard time. How about I pitch my dick up your mama's ass, was his uh, snide response. Um, didn't win him any favors, and he immediately went to jail. After a short stint in New York's Rikers Island prison, Koufax changed his tune. After all the beatings and the non-consensual sex, Koufax would recall, I thought, hell, why not give pitching a try? And aren't we glad he did? Thank you, violence and sexual assault, for gifting humanity one of its greatest baseball players. Kudos to you. Ah, <laughs> Uh, no, 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 no. That was just a bizarre callback to all New Yorkers being, uh, criminals. Uh, no, he was never arrested. Uh, if you're new to my psychotic breaks, I apologize. His parents did get divorced though. And his mother married another man, Irving Koufax, uh, who adopted Sandy. The family then moved to Long Island. And shortly after that, they moved back to Brooklyn. Despite a love of baseball, Sandy was actually more inclined to basketball during his uh, days at Lafayette High School in Brooklyn. Why did he like basketball over baseball? Actually, because he was uh, taller than most of his classmates and teammates. Height made for a more advantageous career in basketball, as it, I think it probably still does today, too. His love of baseball made him join the Ice Cream League. That's not a joke. That's a real thing. Um, the Ice Cream League for baseball at the age of 15. Around this time, his school team also recruited him, his coach recognizing his potential as a pitcher, and he sent him to participate in the Coney Island Sports League. Sandy later attended the University of Cincinnati and played for them for one season, impressing a scout who saw him throw for his college baseball team. In 1954, he signed a contract with the Brooklyn Dodgers Dodgers, for the Brooklyn Dodgers for a salary of $6,000, which contained a $14,000 bonus, which required at the time for Kofax to report to the Major League team for two years, making him, in big league terminology, a bonus baby. What is a bonus baby? Well, it was a free agent player signed under the bonus rule of 1953 through 1957. Such players were usually 18 or 19 years old so full of talent and promise that they overshadowed their high school or college teammates and had their professional team scrambling to sign them. However, many bonus babies had failed careers as they were not ready for baseball in the major leagues, uh, you know, and their talent rusted in idleness on the bench. When he first came up, he couldn't throw a ball inside the batting cage, said Hall of Fame teammate Duke Snyder uh, when he's talking about Sandy Koufax. Just so you know, Uh, not being able to throw inside of a batting cage, that's that's a little sly that's a little baseball code you might not understand. It meant he threw like complete fucking shit. With a limited baseball background, Koufax struggled with control at first, but used his raw talent to begin regularly throwing for the Dodgers. In nineteen fifty nine, Koufax struck out eighteen Giants in nine innings and set a major league record for strikeouts in two games with thirty one. He won the Cy Young Award an NL Most Valuable Player Award that season. He was the greatest pitcher of all time, said writer Jimmy Cannon. And in September 1965, he came as close to affirming that statement as anyone could. More than 29,000 fans were in attendance on a slightly damp, coolish evening to see an odd one-game series with the Cubs. It was hardly worth the trip, Koufax would later say. As the L.A. crowd filtered in, Cubs center fielder Don Young stepped up to the plate to lead off. Koufax wound up and delivered the first pitch. It wasn't a great pitch, and Young hit it to second base and was out. Then he struck out two more guys after that. Sandy's curveball kind of sucked dick early in the game. Koufax's teammate would later recall, We gave him shit about it, because taunting him uh, would usually make him straighten up and fly right. So we shouted stuff like, why don't you throw a curve like the one in your dick, Sandy? Oh, he paused in remembrance. I I should probably mention that Sandy had a curved dick. That's obviously not true. Uh, Jeff Torberg, who was uh, Koufax's catcher that night, said, um, did say his curveball sucked at the beginning. Next, Koufax took out future Hall of Famer Ernie Banks. Then left fielder Pidge Brown, um, he hit a hardliner to center that Willie Davis caught. That was the only fair ball that was truly hard hit against Koufax all night. In the third inning, Sandy started throwing fastballs. His arm was slowly loosening up. He tore through the opposing lineup like a man possessed. Unfortunately, the same thing was uh, happening for the Cubs. While the Cubs hadn't been able to get a single player to first base, neither had the Dodgers. It was two perfect games running congruently. This kept up until the fifth inning, when uh, left fielder Lou Johnson got a walk. Then Ron Fairley laid down a bunt and got Lou to second base. Then, when Jim Lefebvre... LeFebvre. And when he was at bat, Johnson broke for third. He could have screwed the perfect game by getting tagged out. Fortunately for him, Cubs catcher Chris Krug threw the ball into left field and Johnson ran for home plate, getting an easy unearned run. After that, it became a perfect game being played against a no-hitter game. In the sixth inning, Krug led off and slapped a ground ball to Dodgers shortstop Maury Wills. Maury Wills. Quick note here, the position of shortstop is to fill the gap between the second and third baseman. It's because of the high volume of right-handed hitters often hitting the ball between the second and third base hole. This is what led to the creation of the shortstop. Maury Mills picks up the ground ball and flings it to first base, getting the out. It was uh, around this time that players and fans were becoming aware of the unique pitching battle that they were taking part in and or, you know, witnessing. Jeff Torberg said, You could be hearing your own heartbeat. You you want to do everything right. Your heart's pounding. You look up to see a no-hitter. But, but I don't remember uh, when I thought of a perfect game. Sandy Koufax said, Around the seventh, I thought a no-hitter was in reach. And believe me, I wanted it. I didn't think too much about the perfect game. No one said a word to me about what was going on. But I, I knew. And so did everyone else. In the bottom of the seventh inning, Henley was matching Koufax 0-for-0. Zero zero. Henley being the Cubs pitcher, throwing a no-hitter. With the only thing marring his record uh, was Johnson getting a walk. Then Johnson was up to bat again. This time, he hit a soft fly ball behind first base. Ernie Banks was playing first base, and he gave chase. The ball hit the ground just beyond his outreached mitt, and Johnson made it to second. He would be the only pitcher to reach base in the game for either team. During the 8th and ninth innings, Sandy seemed to pick up steam. He seemed to grow stronger and stronger as the night went on. In the 8th, Ron Santo went up and Koufax put on a masterful display of strikeout pitching. I've never seen Sandy throw as hard as he did when he struck me out in the 8th, Santo said. He threw one fastball right by and I was waiting for it. And he seemed to get a burst of energy in the last innings. And so, on to the ninth, Vin Scully who was in the press box, calling the game to the uh, Dodger radio audience. He said, You can almost taste the pressure now. Koufax lifts his cap, runs his fingers through his black hair, then pulls the cap back down, low, fussing at the ball. There are 20,000 people here tonight, said Scully, and a million butterflies. That's pure poetry right there, folks. I'm jealous of that kind of writing. The batter swung and missed at yet another fastball. And Sandy Koufax was two outs away from perfection. Joe Amalfitano stepped up to the plate. Torberg, the guy catching for Sandy, said, I only called one curveball in the last three innings. He'd already gotten big pinch hits off fastballs on us earlier in the season, so I didn't want to give him a fastball. We called a curve on the second pitch, and he fouled it off. I was gunned up, and I got it before it went anywhere. After that foul ball, Scully noted that Koufax had taken a walk behind the mound and said, "I would think that the mound at Dodger Stadium is the loneliest place in the world." Holy shit! Could that guy toss out some lines? At one point in the next pitch or two, Koufax threw so hard he lost his hat on the follow-through, but in the end, he did it. Not only. Did he and the Dodgers pitch a perfect game? But Koufax struck out 14 opposing batters, the most ever recorded in a perfect game. A cleaner game had never been played in the history of the major leagues. In the Cubs locker room, the veteran players could only shake their heads in wonder. That man could drive you to drink, said a grumbling Ron Santo. I've seen all the no-hitters he's pitched. Dodgers manager Walter Alston said, and I'd have to say that he had his greatest stuff in this one. Though he was exuberant at having done what he did, uh, Koufax talked about how tough it was for Hendley uh, on the Cubs team. That was indicative of the kind of character that he has. Even at the moment of his greatest triumph, to be talking about the other guy than about himself, said Ed Grauber, uh, recalling Sandy Koufax. Not long after that game, Koufax's arm ailment—the one that would uh, eventually end his career—reared its ugly head. He has not had a normal arm at any time this year," said Dr. Robert Curlin, the Dodgers' team doctor. "And I'm sure he did not have one last night. It just proves that you can pitch a perfect game with an arthritic elbow." A little over a year later, on November 18, 1966, just 17 days after Kofax became the first three-time Cy Young Award winner in MLB history, Sandy Koufax announced his retirement from baseball, despite being just 30 years old. In fact, it was in April of 1966 that he was told that he couldn't go another season. But he did just that, winning a career-high 27 games. But eventually the pain was too much, and he was afraid that if he kept playing baseball, eventually he wouldn't be able to use his left hand at all. He was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1972. Koufax remained close to the Dodgers organization after retiring. It was made clear that despite not having any official capacity in the team, he was always welcome to come around any time. In 2013, Scully asked Sandy Koufax in an interview, How do you define the art of pitching? Koufax answered succinctly, control and booze I'm kidding you didn't say the booze part he just said the control part I mean I mean come on could uh, would it be unrealistic given the history of baseball and drunks for him to add in the booze I mean would it would it be that hard to believe <laughs> I mean I mean oh and uh, of course you know greasy balls you, you can't forget about greasing your balls. Thank you for listening to this episode of Elton Reads a Book a Week. If you enjoyed it, let me know. Uh, Let me know how I'm doing or any ideas, suggestions, stuff like that, anything. Uh, You can do that on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok even. Uh, Facebook too. There's a Facebook page. It's everywhere. Or email me at eltonreadsabookaweek at gmail.com. Oh, And tell a friend about this podcast to have them binge it or, you know, whatever the kids are doing these days with these podcasts. Um, that it helps to get the word out. It really does. Um, rate and reviewing it helps too, though that is a little time consuming. I, I know firsthand, if you really, really like it, you can contribute to it and you could do so via the links under contribute in this episode's description. Above all else though, Thank you. And do yourself a favor. Start a book this week or finish one. start I mean, read one. Don't let them die out. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.